Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Honest Field Guide podcast, a weekly show dedicated to winning in entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Ginger Birkenbuehl. I'm the CEO of Burke Creative, a leadership, brand strategy, and visual identity agency dedicated to helping scale brands and assist with their adaptability with the market. On my show, you get to eavesdrop in on intimate conversation with business leaders and inspired entrepreneurs designed to give you tips and strategies so your own business can thrive. Subscribe and join me each week for laughter, inspiration, and honest stories. everyone. I am Ginger Birkenbuehl. I am so excited today to be talking to one of my sheroes, Erica Gerdes. Um, she is this amazing leadership advisor, speaker, and author whose mission is to make the world better, kinder, and more joyful. After over a decade as a global executive at Google, Erica made her biggest pivot, leaving the ladder climbing grind as a single mom to guide herself and others in their path to confidence and clarity. She designed the art of undoing to help people undo who they think they should be and unlock who they are to become. So today we're going to talk about pivoting in the pandemic and reprioritizing yourself. But before we do that, I want to say that I met Erica years ago um, while she was working at Google and we had the most instantaneous connection, the two of us, because we're both go-getters, confident, interested and curious about all kinds of things that are happening. And we love entrepreneurship. We spent so much time talking about what would it look like if we built this? What would it look like if we did that? Who should we meet? Who should we connect with? What is this? What's that? It was just, we had so much fun having conversations. So having Erica on my podcast today just is a full circle moment for me because she has officially launched her own platform, which is something that we talked a lot about. So welcome, Erica. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and you are a Shiro of mine. So I'm delighted and honored. Thank you. I have to say, I'm completely in awe of you and what you're doing. I follow what you're doing on social. And I always ask myself, how in the world does she keep the courage to do what she's doing, right? So I would love for you to talk a little bit about how do you find your courage? And I, and I know that we you know a little bit later, we're going to talk about your company and your transformation and your big giant cue, you know, quitting Google to go off on your own. But first, I want to just level set and say, where do you find the courage to do what you're doing in the middle of a pandemic, you know, leaving such a large company like Google? I mean, were you surrounded by brave women as you were growing up as a young girl? I mean, how do you, how do you find the strength yeah. To how keep does this, forward. how does one do this? How does this happen? Um, believe me, I ask myself this all the time. Um, no, well, first, thank you very much. And the same goes right back to you. The feeling is mutual. I, I am so 
inspired by all that you're doing and all that you're creating and all that you're enabling in the world. So I just, I have to start there. And to answer your question, how do I find my courage? It's a minute by minute sometimes and other times day by day choice that I make because we can choose to stay in fear or we can choose to step forth. And I still have fear every single day. I still have doubts that come up every single day. I get triggered all the time and I don't engage with those. I allow them to be there and I instead choose to step forward in my values, which for me, my two core values are um, progress and integrity. And so for me, it is I always look and I say, is this going to help me progress? Am I going to learn something? Am I going to be able to use this in some way, learn from it, even if it's through failure? Um, And am I doing this in my integrity? And then my third is, am I doing this in service? Is this going to help somebody else? Because if I can answer yes to any one of those three or ideally all three, that right there is enough courage to say, this is worth stepping forward. Is this something that you learned early on as a child? So I'm, I'm thinking about when I was 11, um, my mother provided so many um, rich experiences for me so that I could visualize other opportunities. We'd go down to the Art Institute of Chicago all the time. We'd, we'd head to the Museum of Science and Industry. She would send me um, to people's homes that were creative, you know, textile makers and things like that. So I feel like for me, as an, as with an artistic mind, I was provided a rich tapestry of things to learn from. What about you? What was happening when you were a young girl? I mean, did this, did you become this person as an adult or did you, did you journey to the space of, of having, you know, courage? It's a really interesting question because I didn't actually realize that I had a storyline of courage running through my family until very recently, because the more obvious storyline in my family, the thing that really became my identity, which informed who I became and who I should become, was I was really celebrated for achieving. And so from the time I was in second grade, I was chasing gold stars. And that basically didn't stop until I became very conscious of it. And I would say until yesterday, but it's still, it's still something that comes up for me. Like, I still think, do I want the gold star? Is that really going to be what serves me? Like, that's sort of the chase, the choice I have to make. But um, essentially the message that I got very implicitly, it wasn't necessarily explicit, was we're really proud of you when you achieve a lot. I learned that I felt more lovable, more valuable, more worthy when I brought home all A's, when I was, you know, the leader of whatever groups I was a part of, when I was excelling in anything I did. Um, the other thing, I, I there was a, an underlying message of um, it's, it would be very good if you were very pretty and if you were popular and if you were well-liked and if you were responsible and good and mature. And so... I didn't know that those things were the messages I was getting. It just became the way I was. And so I had these constant messages inside of my head, these stories of who I should be, the things I should do, who I should become, the step I should take, where I should go to college, what I should do with my degree. Um, And at a certain point, I, I no longer knew how to listen to what I wanted. I knew how to listen to what I thought other people wanted for me. And I became that person. And it wasn't until um, the last several years of practicing what I call, as you mentioned, the art of undoing, that I started being able to sort of excavate these stories that were inside of my head, these shoulds that I was, that I believed as the truth, 
and undoing the power of those so that I could really step into who I am and who I am to become. Um, and so to answer your other question or the, to answer the other part about what I really discovered as I looked back, um, there is a long line of strong independent women in my family. My great grandmother taught college in the early 1900s. My grandmother was divorced three times by 1940 and moved cross country by herself in like 1930 something um, in order to become a journalist. She graduated from college at 17 years old. My mother, um, after she got divorced, left her career in law and went and got her her, um, her doctorate in psychology the same year I graduated from high school. So like I somehow missed that that was the big storyline in my family that like we're very strong, independent women, but it was always there sort of feeding some level of courage, even if what was really layered over top of it was this very overpowering insecurity that I had. So what were some of the key moments that were happening in high school and college that made you start maybe realizing you had courage or maybe you didn't think you had courage or, or things that sort of informed you to be where you are today, where you're actually making decisions that are very bold. Did you have experiences in high school that set you back or did you have um, experiences that propped you up? What was going on then in your life? I mean, I think I had both. Um, <laughs> I mean, probably the reason, I think what gave me the courage to be where I am today is the the sort of the inner battles that I've gone through in fighting my inner demons um, in order to confront those thoughts and be willing to stand in the storm and come out on the other side. Um, because for the most part, my challenges are of my own making. I mean, it was my own thinking that, that led me to my insecurity that, that led me to my anxiety. I, when I was in high school, I mean, I was basically from the time I was around 11, when my parents got divorced, I became consumed with how I, how I appeared on the outside. And I think some of that, actually probably a lot of it, comes from my family of origin. And I'm doing research for my book right now and speaking with a lot of high achievers. And I hear this time and time again. There's a, a lot of focus on how things look and what will everybody think and, um, you know, from our childhoods and, and now as adults. And so for me, I was totally consumed with how I appeared to everybody else. And the way I wanted to appear to everybody else is like I had it all together. And like I was the girl next door and sort of um, the, you know, little perfect bubbly cheerleader. And so I, that's who I was. And I had to be good at everything. And so I was the captain of the cheerleading squad and I graduated in the top 10 of my class and I was in student council and I was doing service society and I was, you know, like I was doing all the things. At the same time, behind closed doors, I suffered from anorexia and bulimia. I hated myself like with a passion and I, I could never see what I was doing right or, or that I was a good person. Instead, I, all I was ever thinking about was how it wasn't enough. And that sort of, um, continued for as the theme throughout most of the rest of my, um, twenties and even into my thirties, I wouldn't, you know, I didn't recognize it as self-loathing. I recognized it as very high standards. And so I set my expectations of myself very, very high. And I'd feel really good when I reached them, but it always meant that I was chasing achievement um, and recognition, but I was always one step ahead of failure. 
And so that, that drive led me to doing some really good, big, or quote unquote, good, big things like prestigious things like, you know, graduate degree and work at Google. But like I said, you know, behind closed doors, it felt like a facade. It felt like who I was, was, you know, trying to look perfect, but feeling like it was always an act. And so the courage comes from actually getting honest with myself and being willing to do the work to integrate those those parts of myself that I was ashamed of, those parts that felt so imperfect, and recognize that that's actually what gives me strength. It is in embracing my authenticity that enabled me to have the faith and the courage to go out and do this work because I see the impact it can have on so many lives. When you got to college, did you have mentors? Did you have advisors? Like who, what, what was happening? Did you just sort of, were you just going through the motions still or what was going Oh on? yeah. I mean, I, I was going through the motions until like, I don't know, seven years ago. I can tell you exactly when I stopped going through the motions. <laughs> um, so for me, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I literally was still saying that most of my time at Google. But in college, I was basically doing what I was good at and avoiding anything that I wasn't good at. Because if I was good at it, it meant I was getting attention. And if I was bad at it, it meant I was like potentially risking failure. And I was too, I couldn't do that. So um, I mean, I, again, I enjoyed college. I actually started college at the college I thought I should go to, which was Wake Forest in North Carolina. I absolutely loved it. It was a competitive school. And I thought, well, this is this is going to be the place for me. I got there. And all of a sudden, I didn't feel like a big fish in a small pond anymore. I felt really insecure because everybody else was also a high achiever and had, you know, been a superstar in their high schools. And I felt really insecure because now like I could be anybody. I could, I could, I could be very mediocre here. Um, and I ended up manifesting because, because I was so unable to acknowledge how much pressure I was putting on myself and how controlled I felt. Like I was so tightly wound. Um, in high school, I had eating disorders, both anorexia and bulimia. Um, in college, when I went to Wake Forest, I had, I developed a physical dizziness disease. It's called Meniere's disease. It was literally a psychosomatic manifestation of my fear, but it gave me an out. I didn't know it at the time, but it gave me an out. It gave me a permissible way to say, I need to leave. It wasn't because I couldn't cut it. It was because I had a, I had a disease, quote unquote. Um, and then I went back to the state school that where I grew up in, in the, um, the school in my hometown. And I ended up getting two degrees. I made up for the fact that I went to a state school in my hometown by getting two bachelor's degrees, buying a house at 20 years old, um, doing like all these extra things to sort of make up for the fact that I feel like I felt like I had given up on myself or I had failed myself. But again, none of it was ever about like, what do I really want to do with this? What do I want my life to look like in the long term? It was, what am I good at and how can I keep doing it? <laughs> I'm curious about, you got two degrees and you bought a house at 20. That is absolutely, I mean, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, you know, my whole platform is all about, you know, women's financial independence. Like that is a big deal for me. And I did it by myself. Like I did, like everything was about, I have to earn it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, 20 years old, you had a house. My God. I mean, that is just like, how in the world did you do that? I mean, that's, that's, that's amazing. 
so did you, what was your first job out of college? I mean, you had, you had a house before you had a job. I mean, help me understand this. Cause this is, I had a, I had a, I bought a house before I could legally buy a beer. It didn't mean I hadn't bought any beer, but I couldn't legally do it. Um, so yeah. So I, I mean, and I was working a couple of jobs to make sure that I could afford it. I had a roommate, like all the things to, to make sure that I was, you know, able to <laughs> maintain my visual as a, as an achiever who could do it all. Um, so after college, because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I really wasn't sure. Like I felt like all of a sudden the, the, the path just ended. Like I get to choose what I do next. It wasn't just keep taking the step in front of me and I didn't know what to do with myself. And so I decided just to keep going on the same path. And I was like, well, I'm good at school. I'll just keep doing that. And so I went on to get a master's degree. Um, and so I moved up to Wisconsin and I, I got a master's, another degree in communication which is what all my other ones had been in. Um, and then after I finished that, what I discovered while I was in my master's is that I actually really loved teaching. I, I taught college classes um, as I was going through my program and I loved it. I had never had the experience of really being able to see the light bulb go off in somebody's eyes. And to be a part of that transformation was so powerful but I didn't want to go on and get a PhD and go become uh, a college professor at the time. I wanted to, I literally remember like I was at this crossroads in the middle of my program and thinking, well, I really love interpersonal communication. I'm super fascinated in how people communicate with each other and how they make sense of the world. But I don't think that that's going to make me very much money. So <laughs> I opted for organizational communication because I could see how that could get me into corporate world. And so I was literally making my decisions based on how can I make my life look better? What, where did the corporate conversation come Who from? Who knows? I think because it sounded good. I mean, the thing is like, even to this day, like I do not be dream of being an entrepreneur. <laughs> I am not here because I was passionate right. about the idea of being an entrepreneur. My mom was not an entrepreneur. My, both of my parents worked for ho the hospital system. So, you know, they sort of worked in more secure systems. I didn't have family members that were in corporate necessarily, but for some reason that felt like the way to make money and to do something prestigious that wasn't about going and being a professor. So what I, what I realized much later is that what I was essentially being driven by was um, how can I do prestigious things? And that is kind of shameful to say because it sounds pretty bad. And it's true um, about what was going on. And I think we have to be able to be honest about why we're making the decisions we're making so that we can learn how we want to make different ones. So what was your first job though? I mean, when you, when you finished all this incredible amount of schooling, did you wait to take the perfect job or did you just take the first job that came to you based on you applying for things? Like, what was that like? It was definitely the the latter. Um, I applied to a job while I was finishing my program, like right before graduation at a, an aerospace firm. I had absolutely no idea. What in the world? Aerospace? I mean, you know, it's like, I just think about, you know, women and women, career women. We will take the first job that comes to us because we have um, an aversion to risk, I think. Like, we're not saying like, I'm not going to take that job because I'm looking at this company and trying to decide if I have 
a career, you know, lane here. I'm not going to take this job because it's not exactly the amount of money or, and I feel like if, if women took their time and slowed down and didn't take the first job that came their way, they might be on a different path. But I'm just sort of curious about you. You're saying that you did, you went to go to an aerospace engineering company. I never, I never would have even had the courage to do that. What I have realized about myself is I actually have a pretty high tolerance for risk. I didn't know that. Like, it wasn't like I, I realized that that's what was happening, but I can just look back. I've moved across the country by myself a couple of times. I've quit jobs and sold houses and moved. I've, I, I don't know why. It's just the way it is. What I will say about why do we not do this? Like, people should take more time. Yes, we all should. The reason we don't is because there's, I think, well, it's all, it's all related to our identity, but it comes usually down to coming from a place of scarcity or lack. Like, if I don't take this, nothing else will be there. And then why did I make that decision? If I don't take this, I will never have anything else. Like, that's the reason we don't leave bad relationships because what if this is the best I'll ever have? Like, what if I get nobody else? Like, it's better to have something than nothing. And then the other part when we say, but why not wait? Well, who am I to think I deserve anything more? Who am I to blah, blah, blah? So I think what stops many of us is a belief that there is nothing better and who am I to d- believe I deserve it, even if there were. How did you find Google? You said you started off doing, you know, working for something completely unrelated, or maybe it is related. I mean, did they find you or what was the path to you getting there? How did I get to Google story is one of my favorites. Uh, What happened was while I was in my graduate program, I met a boy at a grocery store and I fell in love with said boy at the grocery store. And a little while I was working after my graduate program, he got called to, he was offered a position in California And so he had just moved in with me like two weeks before when he got this call, um, inviting him to come to California for, to work for the government. And so I said, okay, I'll go. So I quit my job, sold my house, did the risky thing. Yep. Did it. Did it. Um, Yeah. I also bought my house in Wisconsin sight unseen. (laughs) So like, I really do have a weird willingness to take risks, but, um, anyway, so I, I quit my job, sold my house and I moved to California with him. Before I did leave uh, Wisconsin, though, I started thinking, but where am I going to work? Like, what am I going to do? And then I became, uh, I realized shortly after that where we were going to be living was um, in the Bay Area of California. And this little company that sounded so interesting named Google was there. And I I loved Google at the point. This is like 2005. Um, I loved them because they had, you know, their website had been so useful in my graduate program for me to find all the information. And I had just gotten on Gmail and I loved it. And, um, I know so much to love, Yeah, right? so much to love. <laughs> so I was obsessed with the idea of working there, like really obsessed. I poured over the website for hours at a time and was like, I loved how it looked like adult daycare and everybody looked like it was an extension of college and there were sandals and backpacks. And anyway, so I moved to California and I applied everywhere except Google because I read that they got a thousand resumes a day and there was no way I was ever going to get a job there because who was I to think I deserved to go to Google? I didn't have a, an Ivy League, at League education. I'd never taken a marketing, advertising, business, or engineering course in my life. I had lots of, I don't know what I thought I was going to do with all these degrees, but um, anyway, so I spent four months looking for a job and getting rejected from every single one. And then finally, um, I really thought that my boyfriend was going to break up with me because I was getting real annoying um, and desperate and just honestly, like I was exhausted from the search. And I started applying to anonymous Craigslist ads. And one of the anonymous Craigslist ads that I saw, I remember specifically, it said, this is an internet powerhouse. But again, I was, this is 2006. Like this is like the, the bubble. 
I was living in Silicon Valley. This could have been three people in a garage. Like, who knows? This is not a Silicon, an internet powerhouse advertising anonymous ads on Craigslist. Um, and it was a job for digital advertising. I had no idea what that was, but I thought, hey, I'll apply. Who cares? Um, days later, I got a call from this ad and it was a third-party recruiting firm. And they said, this is a job at Google. And I said, what? Like, I'd be, a, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're just like, just, wait a minute. Did you say Google? Like, would I be a contractor there? Like, what, what? Um, and they said, no, no, you would actually be a Google employee. And I mean, I about dropped the phone, like peed my pants, all the things. Like, it was not at all graceful. Um, and I ended up going through the application process and they ultimately offered me a job that was higher than the one I applied for. So not only did I not think I was going, that was worthy of getting in, they actually, fate had other plans for me and I, I got in at a higher level than I even applied for. And that was in September of 2006. Do you feel like you set yourself too low? I mean, I mean, why, you know, they offered you something better than what you thought you were worthy of. And this worthy word keeps coming up. But um, did you have a lesson that you learned at that point or did you not learn that lesson until later? It wasn't until later. I mean, and this is where I think it's so important for us at all points in our lives to really reflect on the stories that we're telling ourselves, the experiences that we've had, and allow ourselves to integrate the lessons in different ways than maybe, you know, the way that we, the skewed way that we may have interpreted it initially. Because for me, I literally just felt lucky. I And and what that set me up for was constantly feeling like an imposter. I felt like I had slipped in through the cracks and I didn't deserve to be there. And I needed to work my butt off in order to prove that I deserve to be there every single day because I thought, surely they're going to realize they hired this girl off the streets from Craigslist that nobody else got hired in this way. And I'm going to get fired. And so like, I'm going to fall from the gate, the, you know, the golden streets of heaven and make a fool of myself. And so, no, you know, what, what I did learn much, much later was, or realized much later is that I was constantly seeing myself in a way that was less than who I actually was. I was constantly looking at my weaknesses and focusing there and thinking, how do I make up for or hide these rather than thinking, what are my strengths and how do I showcase these? And how, how might I be looking at myself through, um, distorted funhouse mirrors that are not actually allowing me to see how great maybe I actually am. But like then, you know, to even say the words, how great I am, who am I to think I'm great? Does that, I'm a narcissist if I, if I, you know, brag about my gifts or talk about my strengths. It's much safer for us to focus on our weaknesses because then it won't hurt as bad when somebody else sees them. Was this happening your entire career at Google and how long were you there? I mean, th this is a lot to carry as, as just anybody carrying this, but you know, it just, you know, reminds me of your childhood. You know, you're, you're bringing in some of your childhood trauma to how you, you know, live your life in a corporate environment like Google, which is high pressured. It does require high delivery. Um, you are surrounded by people of excellence all the time. Right. And, and people are very, um, I mean, it's a, it's a fast paced engineering space and it's, it's younger than say, for example, you know, the oracles of the world or even the apples. Right. 
How did you withstand that sort of thinking over and over and over again? To me, I didn't know anything different. So like I felt a lot of pressure and I felt so constricted, but I didn't have an alternative to compare it to because it's who I've been my entire life. And so the reason I share all this stuff so vulnerably isn't because I want anybody to feel sorry for me, but because there's so many of us that have this story. This is not a unique story in any way, shape or form. I And I think that the more that we can honestly and vulnerably talk about these things, the more it invites other people to look at their own stories, their own sort of narratives that they have filling their heads and the experiences that they're creating. And so that we can realize it is possible to have something different. But again, I didn't know that for a long time. I didn't, I didn't have anything else to compare it to. And so I just stayed very tightly wound, very focused on how do I, how do I keep proving myself here? How do I keep proving that I deserve to be here? And it meant that I was, you know, constantly doing more and achieving more and being more. And I had early experiences where I I didn't, I really didn't show up as a great team member. I learned quickly, like, oh, I need to, you know, being competitive is not, is not good. People on the outside, I think people assume that Googlers and other high achieving companies, there's really a lot of competition and it's not really competitive because we're mostly very competitive with ourselves more than we are with each other. When we see somebody else competing, it makes us feel insecure about ourselves. And so we think, oh, I can do more. I should be more. I should achieve more. So I always joke that I am a, an insecure, perfectionist, high-achieving people pleaser. And I think that that pretty much describes a lot of people in a lot of similar places like Google. Well, when I, when I, when I hear this, all I can think to myself is, oh my God, are there other women that you were able to lean on and have relationships with? Because I think in a lot of corporate spaces, there's not enough collaboration and conversation and convening. There's there's a lack of safety. And this is everywhere. This isn't just a company as large as Google. This is all large corporations where you feel like you can't talk. So did you have support inside, outside? I mean, how do you find it? Where do you get it? What, what does it take to have courage to say, I need to build this community around me because I need help and I need to know that everyone's okay and I'm okay and we can help each other. Like, what does that look like? How do you, how do you encourage that? So I feel like now might be a good place to tell, to share my pivot point in life. When my second daughter was born, we discovered that she had a tumor on her spinal cord. And when she was three months old, she went into the hospital and had a seven hour neurosurgery. And I was a hyper-controlling planner. So this was so far outside of any plan I had ever thought of in my life that it really, it shook me to my core. I mean, it's it's really hard to watch your three-month-old infant go in for a seven-hour surgery where they're opening her vertebrae and uh, operating on her spinal cord. And like, who knows what's going to happen? Um, and as I sat in the hospital that night with her, uh, while she was, you know, coming off of the anesthesia and hooked up to all the machines and I could hear the nurses in the hallways and the kids screaming in the pediatric ICU rooms just outside the hallway, all of a sudden I had, I was overwhelmed with anger and rage and fear. And I was mad at God. I was mad at the world. I couldn't like, how could this happen to my daughter? How could this happen to me? And you know how like in the middle of the dark, all of our problems seem magnified. Like it seems like everything is terrible when it's dark outside. Yep. So that happened. And you know, it was also like the most terrible, scariest moment of my life. I had a thought that changed my life in that moment. 
And all of a sudden, as I was sort of spinning out in my thoughts, this like calm bubble broke through. And it was just, it was almost like a whisper. But in that moment, I had a thought that was, I have one life to live. There are no second chances, no do-overs. I get one go round at this life. Why would I spend one more minute waiting to be happy? What I realized in that moment was I was waiting for my life. The one where everything fit in, where all the things I'd done and all the people I'd become and you know, everything fit together so that I finally felt like I fit in my life. And I couldn't keep waiting for people and situations and experiences to change in order for me to get there. I had to take responsibility for it. That entirely changed my life. The thing is, making decisions to live more authentically doesn't happen in these really broad, sweeping, huge, life-changing decisions. It The path to authenticity is paved in micro-decisions. There are these tiny little seemingly insignificant steps that we're taking over and over and over again that allow us to get closer to who we really are and undo sort of all of the power of the stuff that has kept us stuck up to that point. And so for me, the, the journey that led from that moment in the hospital, my daughter is, is okay now, to, you know, deciding to leave Google first included, who am I? Like, if it's not about achievement, it's not about what everybody else's opinions are, who am I? And I couldn't even tell you what my favorite color was, if I liked sports or not, what books I liked or what music I preferred, because I was always looking around to see what everybody else said. And the only reason I share that is because Far and away, every woman in particular who comes to me, and when they're willing to be honest, which is hard, they will say, I don't know who I am. I have no idea what I actually want. And so we can't start by asking ourselves, what do I want for the rest of my life? We have to start by asking, what do I want right now? It is in that moment-by-moment decision. The more that we listen to and honor those, the easier it becomes to get confident and courageous in making bigger, grander, more audacious decisions in our lives. And so for me, it was first my divorce. And then, because I did ultimately realize that I wasn't happy in my marriage. So I got divorced. The divorce is actually what gave me the power to leave Google. I remember talking to you before you left Google and I will never forget sitting at lunch with you and just talking about the mechanics of what happens when you don't have a big company like Google behind you. And this is for any woman that decides they're going to leave any company. And there's women that leave tiny little companies and they still can't do it. And there's women like you that leave big companies and they're all still fundamentally the same kind of place of fear. And I'm going to tell you, when you left, I was scared for you. Everybody has told me that they were like, Ooh, I didn't want to tell you, but I was terrified. I, mean, for I you. was, well, I did tell you, <laughs> you did. No, tell me I that. told you, you yeah. told, you were like sitting, you were sitting at lunch and you're just like, I, I think I was like a little heartbroken when you said it, but I also appreciated the honesty. <laughs> I know you were heartbroken. You said you were, you said, you know, I really didn't want to hear all this. Yeah. <laughs> like, you should, this is how I am. Right. Um, but the thing is like, so once you actually left Google, there was a little bit of a honeymoon and a little bit of a pleasant, you know, happy time because you were free, which everybody feels freedom when they leave, when they made the decision to leave their companies or whatever they're doing and do something different. And then 
the pandemic hit. Oh, well, but my pun, my, that was over a year later. So I had, oh, I had already gone through like the, you know, deep muck for, I was kind of coming out on the other side when the pandemic hit. And then it was just like, oh, and here we are again. I know. I mean, you just, you, you left, you left brand Google, which also took a little bit of your identity with it. Oh, right. Like all of it. Yes. All of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the pandemic hit. So then you're sort of really sort of hanging out and, and wondering, and I don't know, did you wonder what had you done? And I say this because there are women now that are opening businesses, even in a pandemic. And there's some women that are doing it because they have no choice, yep. right? They have no options and they're doing things to be scrappy, to make money. You know, aside from the fact that, you know, you lost the big brand, um, I would like to hear a little bit about how you felt about your identity when you didn't have Google behind you. And then I want to hear about how have you been able to manage this experience in the worst financial, health, social, political nightmare that we've had in recent memory? So when I decided to leave, because again, like I chose to leave at the top of my career, it wasn't like I was walking away or running from anything. I still loved Google. And I, I still say we, if I don't know if I've said it here, but often because I consider myself having graduated. Um, so I wasn't leaving because I hated Google. I was leaving because I could, I dreamt of something more. And I could feel myself being pulled towards something greater in my life, not greater than Google, but greater for me. And um, so, you know, I was so proud of myself and I probably was proud of myself in my conversations with you about, you know, I felt so noble about having done all the work to get to this place of being willing to walk away from a 12 year career at Google as a global business leader as a single mom with little kids and no financial support and all Bragging the things. Rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I'm so, Bragging you know, rights. I've done all this. Um, and then I left <laughs> and the, the honeymoon that you mentioned lasted about a day for me. Um, because all of a sudden I felt like I was floundering. You mentioned floundering earlier and I felt like I was floundering. I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't know how to spend my days. I didn't know how to demonstrate my value because I didn't have KPIs that I was, you know, racing against or meetings that were filling my days. I literally didn't know what to do with myself. But the worst shock of all for me was that um, I didn't know who to say I was. So when somebody would say, so what do you do? I, I hated that question like no other. But of course, like everybody asks that question. And even as I say it right now, it makes me feel queasy um, because I would say, oh, I'm a coach and a speaker, but I worked at Google for 12 years. It was like I couldn't, I literally could not stop this automatic like spew of justification for why I was important and why the place that I just left was you needed to know that I worked there. And what I ultimately realized is um, my identity was entirely tied to what I did and where I worked. And without it, I didn't feel I had value. And I had no way of seeing that before I left because I was still inside of the system. And so, you know, people always ask me, like, how did you do it? How did you decide to unlock the golden handcuffs? And what I can say now on the outside is the golden handcuffs are not our paychecks and our health insurance. They are not our corporations. The golden handcuffs are our identity. Because when we need any label, anything that is tied to some part of our worthiness in order to feel valuable, then we will protect it at all costs. We will hold on to it because it confirms that we do in fact belong, that we are lovable, that we are valuable and worthy. And so it, that sort of realization of, oh my God, I don't think I'm worthy. Like that was a really hard pill to swallow. Um, 
And so that's what actually triggered me starting to practice what I was, what I actually started calling the art of undoing, like literally stop doing, stop trying to prove your value. Stop trying to like fill your days, just stop doing. And, um, when I was able to rest and like stop doing things and actually learn how to be the doing became easy and natural and much more effortless. And so I think because I went through that identity crisis and because I began practicing the art of undoing in 2019, I was like completely fine for the pandemic because when everybody else was starting to go through their undoing, this like, oh my God, what do I do when I can't do anything? And like, how do I keep myself busy? And you know, like the world is crashing around us. I'd already gone through that. My world had crashed around me. I had to figure out how to be okay in spite of it all, even when it was just my own constructed world. And so I actually felt like pretty okay. I mean, there were certainly days where I felt like I was verging between hypervigilance and hypochondria, but for the most part, I actually have been okay during the pandemic. I was surprised to hear you describe identity crisis after Google because it seems like you maybe created an identity that you were looking for from when you were very young. We actually develop our identity very early in our lives. And it's in part, it's, it's always based on um, the people, the important people in our lives and who we think we need to be for them, like to feel love and belonging and who we can't be. So we stay far away from those things because our belonging and literally our physical survival is based on their love and acceptance. And so we learn very, we're conditioned to do more of the things that they approve of and do less of the things that they don't approve of. And over time and with enough repetition, those are no longer conditioned responses, their identity. And what I had done and what I didn't realize until I was had gone through this crisis, uh, identity crisis, that is, is I had literally built my entire world around always confirming I was the things I needed myself to be seen as. It wasn't Google. It wasn't that, you know, like my identity started well before Google ever existed, but it's what Google meant because Google was a one word um, shortcut of me letting you know, if I said I worked at Google, you know that I'm a high achieving, hardworking, smart person. I didn't even have to say any of that. I just said Google. And so when I didn't have that, now you could see me for anything. I could be a lazy, narcissistic failure. And those are the things I can't be. So I had to really come to terms with the fact that I had created a very narrow range for my life simply because I could not look at who I might be outside of it. It was too afraid of exposing myself to that. And the thing is, we're all doing this. We are all constantly manufacturing lives that confirm again and again that we are what we need to be or we see ourselves to be because the risk is far too great. It feels like a physical survival risk. It's a threat to our identity and our safety when we go outside of that. And so that's you know really what I teach people now. But in terms of the spirituality piece, I do believe, like when, before I left Google, and I think I had shared this with you, I actually felt a physical pull to leave Google. And that sounded so freaking crazy. And I had no idea how to explain it to people, but I felt this pull in my stomach and it was, an, it was very metaphysical. It wasn't like I could actually, you know, it felt like a rope, but it wasn't there. Um, and it felt like I was being pulled and it's almost as though, and I see this again and again now, it's almost as though everything was falling away. And what I realize now is that we have to create space in our lives, in you know, karmically, universe from a universe perspective, 
energetically in order for new things to grow. Much of the time we get so sad when things disappear, whether it's relationships or friendships or jobs or opportunities or whatever. But what I think that we all need to realize is that space is there for new growth to occur. We have to be willing to let go of that in order to make room for what is to become. And when I was able to let go of Google and that identity, it enabled me to really embrace this expansive opportunity for who I am to become. And that's going to change in every single minute of every single day, potentially. So I have to constantly be willing to let go of who I think I am right now in order to make room for who I'm going to be tomorrow. So the pull you're talking about, right, that you were feeling, how did you quiet yourself and quiet your environment so that you could recognize that something was happening? Because a lot of times people, there's not enough quiet. Did you create the conditions to see the pull or was it happening and you were like, what is that? I mean, what was going on that you were able to figure this out? You didn't ignore it. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, I tried for a while, but um, so as part of my journey, so sort of through those years of getting to know who I was and some of the other things I mentioned, like divorce, I became very spiritual and I started really practicing um, a morning ritual and becoming very intentional about my thoughts and, you know, not not holding on to the thoughts that weren't serving me. And one of the things that I really did that I teach everybody now is um, I started paying attention to what my energy was doing in any moment. And most of a lot of high achievers, I mean, I think this is true for a lot of people, especially, you know, when we're not really like conscious, like a spiritual conscious, um, we, we sort of forget that we have bodies attached to our heads, <laughs> um, because we're so proud of our, our heads and like, you know, we're, we're so focused on the past or the future or whatever that we're not paying attention to what our bodies are doing. And so we don't really notice it until our energy is completely on zero or like all of a sudden we're having an emotional outburst that we had no idea was coming or what to do with it. And so when I started really paying attention to my energy, I started realizing it was constantly telling me things. It was constantly letting me know if like I was getting closer to something that was good or if I was close to something that I wasn't, that didn't serve me, that felt negative. And the more that I calibrated my choices based on my energy, the better and better I felt. Mm-hmm. And what it was also enabling me to do is to really pay attention to how I felt at all times. And um, when we start actually living in our bodies, it gives us a lot of information that we're otherwise missing because we're so focused on our heads. And so I think it's possible for all of us through quiet and intentional sort of mindfulness and paying attention to literally how we feel that we start to get a lot of information from our bodies. And for me, my mind was this metaphysical pull. I've had clients talk about, um, you know, sometimes their messages are coming through like recurrent illnesses. I have an ex-boyfriend that like, he constantly had a stomach ache and it was because he wasn't processing emotion. And I mean, so like our bodies are full of knowledge if we just pay attention to them, but we have to actually feel first. And so for me, what I know now is that, Uh, authenticity is a feeling practice. It's not a knowledge. It's not a thinking practice. We have to be able to feel to know what feels right and what feels good. I am so grateful to have talked to you. You are such an amazing light. I love that you are having success with your company. And I'm also excited that you can show a path to other women that might be asking themselves, I need to make a change, but I'm scared. I feel like you are you know, a guiding light for women that decide that are working in corporate, that 
yeah, it's time to start thinking about yourself and decide I'm going to stop doing this and do something else instead. And I'm going to, I'm going to take care of my own life. I want everyone to find Erica online at ericagertis.com. And she's got an incredible, you know, leadership and coaching platform. It's really amazing and exciting. And she's had so much um, success over the last year. And I'm very, very honored, Erica, that you showed up to talk to me on the Honest Field Guide podcast. Thank you to our audience for listening in. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carol. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only 